Editing out all your coughs is going to be fun later. <coughs> I know it's a dead rattly one as well. Mm. Get some liquid in your face and we'll I know, be alright. I'm right. going to have a fizzy from... Do I not get a glass with this? No. I'm going to drink this like some kind of... Oh, God. What is this? I'm hillbilly. Yeah. What? Some oik. That's the way you classify a hillbilly. Not having a glass? Yeah, I wasn't drug up. Thank you. You weren't drugged up? No, I didn't say drug, I said drug. That's definitely a word. Oh, we're getting some lovely ASMR there. Fizzle, fizzle, fizzle. It's fizzy vimto for anybody who doesn't know, because I don't really drink. So. But you do drink fizzy vimto? I do drink fizzy vimto. You do like fizzy vimto. I need the boost. I've got to go back to my painting soon. Joe's literally got an hour. Okay. Dear listeners. Have a sip. Is it nice? Fine vintage. Is it? Is it soothing that throat? Yeah. Since 1900, it says on Vimto. Since 1900? Yeah. Of course, born in the north, it was. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Okay, well, do you know what? We're covering someone younger than Vimto. Well, there you go. Very Mm. interesting. Because this story, much like Vimto, begins at the turn of the 20th century. All right, nice. Harold Cole was born on January 24th, 1906, in Hoxton, London. So he would have known what Vimto was. Well, he might not have... In his life. He might not have been uh, able to get hold of Vimto, because at the time, Hoxton was described as being ruinously poor. Not just poor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ruinously, Lily. Yeah. That's where when only when the poverty got crippling did you move to Hoxton. Where is it? It's in London. East End, as far as I know. It was also a hotbed of criminal activity. Oh, with, right. With police at the time commenting, if you put a net around Hoxton, you'd have caught around half of the criminals in the world. Wow. So not one for hyperbole. No. No. Whether this was true or not, I have no idea. However, what I do know is that 27 years after Harold, a pair of twins called Ronnie and Reggie would also be born in Hoxton. Ah, okay. Mm. Is that helping you geographically now? Yeah, I kind of know where you're at now. It's probable that Harold was not planned, as his parents only got married a month before he was born. But planned or not, he was immediately a drain on his parents' already meagre resources. That's how you want to be remembered. A drain. A drain. (laughs) That's Harold, our drain. Harold Cole's dad, Albert, was an unskilled labourer, and as a result, the family were regularly moving house around Hoxton to be closer to whatever job he managed to get. Pot washer, stoker, longshoreman, and general Uh labourer. If it was low-paid and with minimal security, Albert Cole was all over it. He was a proper, you know, he'd turn up, he'd just turn up at the gates in the morning asking if they had work for him. That oh, kind of wow. guy. Wow. That was his level of job security. Okay. Then in 1914, World War One broke out and Albert saw an opportunity to take a job with some hope of advancement that might break him out of his cycle of poverty. Didn't join the army. Oh, he did. Albert Cole Jesus joined the Christ. British army to take part in the war, confident that it would be over by Christmas. 
It's what they all said. Albert spent nearly two years toiling in the mud of northern France, before finally being gunned down as just another faceless Tommy. Wow. Sacrificed during the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Oh my God, he was actually at the Somme. Wow. He, he, he was at the Somme and all he got was this blood-covered uniform. And trench foot. And trench foot. So he died shell in 1916. Shock. No, he didn't have time to get shell shock. Oh no, I guess he did. Before he was gunned down. Oh. Harold's mother, Alice, Alice Anne actually, was naturally devastated when she received the news just before Christmas. Oh, bloody hell, Merry Christmas. I know. It was a very oh. desolate festive season that year. It would have been. Oh no, now I'm imagining like Tiny Tim just an empty stocking. In the bleak midwinter. Jesus. But early in the new year, Alice Ann bounced back <laughs> and got married to a brand new husband, a man called Robert Mason. Half-siblings right. soon followed and Harold, 11 years old by this point, tried his best to adjust to this new, larger family. And at first, it appeared that he was going to be able to do so. But in 1919, Robert made the bombshell announcement that he was moving the family out of Hoxton and everything Harold had ever known. Oh, Jesus. He had the audacity to suggest that they move three miles north to (gasps) Clapton. Oh, my God. Yeah. This was at least two miles further than Harold Cole was willing to tolerate. And he decided to leave school and strike out on his own at the age of 14. Positively geriatric. Well, he was apparently quite intelligent and adaptable, so it was likely that he would quickly be able to find himself a job in the metropolitan capital of the British Empire, where a quick-witted lad bound Jack to be able to make, lad. yeah bound to be able to make his fortune, isn't he? Yeah. So is he is he of comparable age to Ronnie and Reggie then? No, no, he's, like I say, they were born 27 years after him. It's just that they were born in the same right. area. Oh, I see. He was alive when they were alive. Yeah. You know, so the, there would have been a crossover point, but he wasn't He wasn't still in the East End at that point. Probably for the best. By 1923, four years before Ronnie and Reggie came on the scene, Harold was starting his first prison sentence. What did he do, naughty boy? Mm. Well, it turned out that his natural talents were a perfect match for a career as a confidence trickster and fraudster. He had learned to suppress his Cockney accent and was fastidious in his grooming. Oh my God, so he was the Artful Dodger? Well, no, because the Artful Dodger looked like a dirty urchin, whereas (laughs) Harold, he would dress himself up in a suit. He'd make sure that he was speaking the Queen's English and he would head off off to all the world a respectable middle-class businessman into the city of London proper, which is only two miles south of where he was, uh, to lull people into giving him huge sums of cash as a loan. For what? What? I I, I want to know what his his Well, the the scam would change. So sometimes it was he was starting a business and he would be able to talk somebody into, you know, sort of becoming a shareholder in his business. Yeah. He'd say whatever until he had big bags of cash. And then he would return to Hoxton and live the high life until the next time he needed to take out a loan. Uh-huh. So it's pretty much a hand-to-mouth kind of thing. He'd get a big score, but then he wasn't very good at keeping hold of money. Fair enough. He liked a lot of things like alcohol and <sighs> prostitutes. Oh, wow. And gambling. So a proper man about town. But of course, also, he had to keep up this persona, so he was also buying silk shirts, ascots. 
fancy hats. He, he had to look the, the part as well. Wow. Despite being caught a few more times during the 1920s and the early 1930s, most of the criminal class of London agreed that there was no better confidence trickster than Harold Cole. Wow, he was it. He, he was, was the biz. Yeah. Excellence. Every, everybody would know who he was, though, by then. Oh, everybody, everybody in Hoxton knew who he was, but he was going to other parts of London. Oh, right. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. And he'd be changing it up all the time. So sometimes he'd be a businessman. Sometimes he'd be, you know, a lord who'd fallen onto hard times. He had all of the, these different characters that he'd play. Uh, wow. And, you know, depending on the mark, he'd select one of his many characters and away he'd go. As an example of his powers of persuasion, at one point while he was serving a prison sentence, he managed to convince the the uh, head jailer, yeah, the, the governor of the prison, that he should be released due to having tuberculosis. Wow. But he managed to convince this man that he had tuberculosis, despite the fact that he was playing the trumpet in the prison band. Now, what this man has is the gift of the gab. Yeah. So he, he, is it is it true Norman Stanley Fletcher? Are they? He's brilliant. Proper gift of the gab. Yeah. So the Dell boy. This person would have seen him playing the trumpet, wow. and then the very next day he walks in and goes, "My lungs, I've got the black lung. <laughs> You're more convincing than Harold." But he did manage to convince them, and they did let him go free early. Wow. Because they were worried that you know the conditions in prison might make his uh make his tuberculosis his that he clearly TB. had. <laughs> Harold did try to go straight around 1936, joining the British Army because that had worked out so well for his dad. Yeah, uh, and serving in the Far East, possibly to allow time for his notoriety in London to die down. Either way, he deserted the army within a few hours and made his way back to Europe over the course of a couple of years, scamming all the way. Wow. In 1938, he was in France, trying to scam the British consulate in Aix-les-Bains, which I may have got wrong, Wow. Uh, out of money, by claiming to be a member of the RAF. As Wing Commander Wayne. Wayne what? No, that's it. That's the surname. It's W-A-I-N. He's oh, Wing right. Commander Wayne. He okay. claimed that he'd been on a top-secret mission to Egypt. Right. Unfortunately, though, his plane had broken down and was currently out of commission at a nearby French airfield. So surely the consul could see their way to spotting the wing commander 50 quid so he could get it fixed and could get back on with his clandestine work. I mean, it takes some kahunas, doesn't it, really? What, to go to the British consulate and go, I'm on a secret mission for the British? Yeah. But we're the British and we don't know about it. That's because it's a secret. Sensibly, Philip Lawton Bramley, who was, you know, the consul at the time, uh, because, mainly because he had a double-barrelled name. Of course. So, of course, he's going to work for the Foreign Office. Um, he'd been educated at the most exclusive private schools and had quickly marked Wayne as not behaving as one of the officer class. Oh, right. Oh, probably. Really? Mm. I'd imagine the officer class to do drinking, drugs and gambling and well, I think fast women. I think that's part of the problem, though. I think uh, Harold would behave in the way a poor person thought a posh person would behave. Oh, right, okay. And proper posh people were looking at him and going, wait a minute, he's way too straight-laced. Yeah. He's way too formal. This isn't... Yeah, yeah. 
you know, this is a caricature, this isn't right. Undeterred, though, Harold Cole carried on his swindler's tour of France, scamming as many provincial <laughs> diplomats... Swindler's list. <laughs> <laughs> I myself laugh. <laughs> swindler's list. You really wanted to do a joke about a Holocaust film? It's the closest I could get to the wars. Fair enough. Okay. Um, Undeterred, Harold Cole carried on his swindler's list of France, scamming as many provincial diplomats and officials as possible while they were distracted by the looming threat of war. His luck finally ran out on February 13th, 1939, when he was caught by authorities trying to run yet another scam. However, within seven months, Britain was at war with Germany and Harold Cole was at liberty again. Wow. It's like we we have bigger stuff to worry about, Harold. Just piss oh, yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. Having spent a few years impersonating an officer in the British Armed Forces, yeah. Cole figured he may as well try and be one in real life. So in September 1939, he rocked up to a recruiting station for the Royal Engineers in Colchester right. to sign up for duty. Okay. Mm. Cole applied his command skills to schmoozing with the officers. He referred to them as old man and old sport. And pretty what much, ho? Yeah, pretty much anything with old prefixed. Oh, what ho, old lemon? Old sock. <laughs> I like old sock. Might start referring to you as old sock. <laughs> you probably could. Legitimately today, I'm absolutely grimy as. Mm. Well, he also, he proved to be a very quick study of the drills and stuff. <coughs> so while while everyone was just training up in basic, yeah. he, was, he was very quick on it. He could pick things up and replicate them almost immediately Uh, and his charm offensive was so powerful that he was promoted to a lance corporal within a week so he got his first promotion in the british army within a week no he just what ho old bean look at how well i marched and they're like yes because bear in mind there's a chap this was right at the start of the war where they were getting loads and loads of recruits coming in yeah so the vast majority of these people would not have been dressed as sharply as Harold. They wouldn't have been as wow. well groomed. They wouldn't no. have been, you know, as as at ease with the entire situation with the officers as he was. So he stood out straight away God. from the rank and file. The Royal Engineers headed for France on September twenty fourth, nineteen thirty nine, as part of the nearly four hundred thousand men of the British Expeditionary Force to provide support to the Allied armies of mainland Europe. Cole was stationed just south of Lille as part of a group maintaining a supply depot and constructing pillbox fortifications in the nearby countryside in preparation for any offence from the Axis powers. Uh-huh. So the pillboxes are those concrete ones that just have the little slit in yeah. them. You know, the ones you can still see on the on the beaches and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's, mm. there's some in this country, there's some in France. Yeah, well, he constructed some of those ones in France. Wow. Near Lille. Without the threat... Of imminent battle, though, because this was the time of the phony war. Right. Where everyone sort of got ready and then nothing happened for a while. Cole oh. continued to talk the talk. And did act... he walk the walk? Well, he didn't have to. It was a phony war. But what he did do was act in the right way. Um, he knew he knew which hand he needed to pour the port with. Okay. All that kind of jazz. Oh, wow. All those unspoken rules, he knew them all. Because he'd learnt them from a book. And before long, he was promoted again to Lance Sergeant wow. in February 1940. So bear in mind, he's been in the army, what, less than six months? And yeah. he's already received two promotions, despite he's blagged it. never being actively involved in a battle 
or a skirmish. Wow. Or anything. He's just he's just turned up and helped to maintain a supply depot. That's all he's done so far. But he couldn't keep suppressing his criminal nature. And in March, late, one rainy night, one of the soldiers under his command noticed that Cole was sneaking around when he should have been on guard duty. Oh, what's he up to? Well, Cole was actually in charge of this group of soldiers. He was the person who was... Um, you know, setting up the watches. And yeah. he'd done it in such a way to say, right, guys, you need to be over there out of my line of sight that way. You guys need to be just over there and do not leave your posts. No matter what happens, oh, whether you hear the sound work, of though, did it? breaking glass or a crowbar being polished, yeah. just stay where you are. Okay, I've got this area Nothing here. to see here. The next morning, it was discovered that the non-commissioned officer's mess fund had been stolen. Oh, that is low. Yeah, he'd stolen the scram money. The soldier who had seen Cole sneaking about, a man called Moran, reported his suspicions to the authorities, who decided to give Cole enough rope to hang himself and put him in charge of the investigation. Which, for Cole, he must have thought, oh, this is this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Cole, amazingly, proved very good at finding some of the money which the thief had hidden behind toilet cisterns in local taverns frequented oh, by wow. British soldiers. And he, he went to these, let's say, a bit too quickly. You know, right, okay. Very little investigating had had to be done. He hadn't sort of, you know, like, gone into all of the local taverns and put the, you know, put the screws on them. Yeah. He just kind of walked straight to the toilets and gone, well, if I was a criminal genius slash hunk. <laughs> if I was a silver-toned fox. I'd be hiding the money here. Yeah. Et voila. Yeah. Man, I'm good. Yeah, but he regretfully reported that most of the money will probably never be recovered as the daring robber, whoever he was... Whoever he was? He was just too damn clever. Outwardly, the military police accepted Cole's findings. However, secretly, they had some undercover officers start following... Oh, wow. Just in case. (sighs) It's not as clever as he thinks, then, is he, old clever dick? Well, yeah, he, he, he thinks he's he's got away with this one. So, yeah. believing the heat was off, he went directly to an apartment in Lille, where he was found in bed with two prostitutes oh. next to the pile of stolen money. Oh, that is bad. He was, naturally, arrested. Of course. But the very same evening, while his guards were eating dinner, Cole picked the lock of his makeshift cell door and wandered off. Oh, my God. He did try to get a revolver and ammo from the armoury. Yeah. Telling the soldier on duty that he'd been released due to all being a big misunderstanding. Oh, God. But the man on duty wisely refused to give him a gun. (laughs) I would. And started calling for backup. Yeah. You've just seen this guy get less than two hours before. Yeah. Marched past you in handcuffs. And then he's walking back and just going, yeah, don't worry about that. Give me a gun. An ammo. Yeah, like he wouldn't even be a little bit suspicious about that. Just, just two, three, make it five, five, five clips. Can I have a, can I have a gun and five clips of ammo, please? When now? But it's seven o'clock in the evening. What are you doing? You know, um, just going to go hunt some rabbits. Things for tea. The lack of a gun may have proved to be a blessing in disguise for Cole, right? As he was later confronted by very armed military police in a local cafe and forced to surrender. Wow. Okay. And if they'd have known he was armed. Things might have gotten a bit more bullety. Yeah, a bit more lethal. Yeah, it's probably a good job that the guy from the armory went, he's definitely not got a gun. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, because I haven't given it one. Yeah. And off he was marched to prison. Again. Two weeks later, Cole escaped again. Oh, for God's sake. And this time, he managed a fortnight of living the high life in northern France. You can't help but feel like they do it to themselves, their incompetencies. Well, even better, in the space between his cell door and freedom... Yeah. One of the officers had left her greatcoat, which just so happened to have his checkbook in it. Oh, for fuck's sake. So not only was he running around northern France having a gay old time, he was doing it using bad checks that he wrote from a, <laughs> an officer's checkbook. Oh, wow. Which I'm guessing probably gave him more oomph. He's like, yes, I am Officer Brandon Smythe. Yeah. <laughs> of course you know my credit is fine. More prostitutes and caviar for my friends. Hurrah! We caviar. love you, Smythe. When he was recaptured, the military police wisely placed him in a literal stone fortress. Yeah. Designed to the exacting specifications of the Sun King himself, Louis the Fourteenth. So he was placed in what would have been a literal dungeon, because he kept escaping from whatever makeshift jail they put him in. It sounds like a cardboard box, to be fair. Mm. No, nothing better than a cardboard box. Well, despite being subject to medieval levels of incarceration, yeah. Cole tried and succeeded in escaping several more times. Oh my god. However, it was actually the Germans who did Cole a favour in May 1940 by staging the Blitzkrieg of Europe. I have a really gross fact about the Germans. Do you want to hear it? Is this about all Germans or about a German? This is about a common practice in Germany in the 18th and 19th century. Let's hear your disgusting fact. Okay, so our little boy, you can't call hot dogs hot dogs because he gets upset and thinks it's a dog in a bun. So you call it sausage in a bun and then he kind of knows what it is. Well, I went and had a look and see why hot dogs are called hot dogs. And in the 17th and uh, sorry, the 18th and 19th centuries in Germany, it was common practice to use dog meat in sausages, in bratwurst. And that's why they're called hot dogs. Wow. That's my really gross fact. That's, that's a pretty gross fact. Yeah. Well, it, to be fair, you advertised it as a gross fact. Yeah. You delivered on that. I did. 100%. But now we're done with the fact and we're back to the Blitzkrieg. Yes. In just six weeks... The Nazi forces had overrun Belgium, the Netherlands, the Netherlands. The Netherlands. How did they manage that? They took over the Netherlands. Think of a wonderful thought. The Netherlands. (laughs) They'd spent half a day subjugating Luxembourg, as is tradition, because it doesn't take that long to subjugate Luxembourg, really. No. You leave a dozen people with one grenade and... Yeah. Yeah. You're done. And two-thirds of France... Wow. As it became clear that a retreat was going to have to take place, the long-suffering guards assigned to Cole reportedly unlocked his cell and said, I don't care a bugger what you do. We're off. Okay. What Cole did, rather than head for Dunkirk, was to find a married woman called Madeleine de Rum okay. and convince her and her young son to move with him to La Madeleine which is nice considering it's her name, yeah. near Lille. Oh. Cole was now just one of thousands of British soldiers stuck behind German lines in northern France, having to evade German spies, such as the amazingly named Dutchman Cornelius Johannes Antonius Verloop. What a name. I know. It just keeps going and it keeps getting better. 
It does. Do you know what's making me really happy, though, mm. is the fact that during all this, Paddy would be there. She'd be... Not, not yet. Would she not quite be there Paddy yet? Paddy wouldn't be there yet. Because the, the net spy networks in occupied France, France has only literally just been occupied, so it took oh, a little right, while okay. for Paddy to get out there. She's there soon, though. She will be there at some point. Yeah. She's not in this story, though. No. It's not uh, like he's we walking should, down we the should street. Add the, uh, should add the... the is it ad- advocate? Ad- advocate? What's the word? Advocate's a drink. Yeah, I know it is. Caveat? Caveat. Okay. The caveat, you're thinking of a specific episode that we did many moons ago. Many, many moons ago. Forever, my favourite lady in the whole world, Paddy O'Sullivan. Yeah. One... Spy. Sp- Extraordinaire. Well, yeah. And a, a true brick. <laughs> she was a true brick. I'll give you that one. So, yeah, the German spy network, they knew that there were a lot of British soldiers who hadn't got off the beaches but hadn't been captured. Yeah. And they were like, right, we've got to weed these guys out as quickly as possible. We need to secure our gains. Uh Some of the more enterprising French began trying to transport the British south over 600 miles towards Marseille, where they could head back to England via neutral Spain. So you had to get from occupied France to Vichy France, which was the sort of independent bit at the bottom. And then from there you could get through to Spain and then you'd travel back up. Yeah. Yeah. Cole became aware of this people smuggling network and, ever the opportunist, saw that it was a perfect chance to make some money. He created a new alias... Captain Paul de la Belle, and convinced a French business owner and local official called Dupre to fund a network to return British soldiers home. Wow. Captain de la Belle promised that any money that Dupre put up would be returned to him by the British intelligence services as soon as it was safe to do so, because he was definitely working on behalf of British intelligence. Oh, definitely. Don't question it. It may be that Cole also saw this as an opportunity to rehabilitate his image and to avoid a prison sentence when he returned to England. Yep. But he was definitely going to make sure that he was okay, first and foremost. Of course. He did this by having Dupre make him fake documents, which identified him as Joseph de Rum, Madeleine's actual husband, who was at that time a prisoner of war wow. in Germany. Oh, gosh. Right, okay. So she was... Uh, treaded a fine line there. Mm, I mean, he could be released in a prisoner swap, come home. <laughs> it's like, exactly. oh no, there's two Joseph de Rums now. Wow. Oh. It's like loaning out someone's car and hoping they don't notice, isn't yep. it? And it's his identity. He also had a letter drawn up that confirmed that he had hearing and speech impediments. This was to cover up the fact that he spoke very limited French, <laughs> which was delivered with a clear Cockney accent. Wow, okay. <laughs> Zoot, hello, Mary Poppins. <laughs> Oh, Mon Dieu. God. It's me, it's Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Bonjour. Bonjour. Oh my God, no, it sounds like Del Boy. Yeah, it is Del Boy. <laughs> Thinking about it, Del Boy is not a bad way of imagining this man. Yeah, I know, right? Okay. He is Del Boy. I said that at the beginning and I thought, oh, maybe he won't be... De-. No, he is Del Boy, for sure. But despite the fact that he couldn't really speak French, he had a contact who could provide false documents and his new fake wife being able to access a private room above a hair salon where she'd gotten a job with a woman called Janine Vogliamacci, who was sympathetic to the newfound cause. Cole then built up a very efficient network of agents using his silver tongue 
and was able to start smuggling British servicemen south within a few months of his relocation. Ooh. So he'd been given lemons. He'd been left for dead behind the lines. Oh, yeah. He, he'd made some lemonade. He had. He's going okay. By the autumn, he had managed to effectively take overall control of all the smuggling networks in northern France. Uh-huh. Based purely on his patter. Yeah. You know, he could talk it up and everyone, especially considering for the for the French people who were working in these networks, the Brits, if they got caught, they'd just be sent to camps. Yeah. The French would more often than not be tortured and executed. Yeah. You know, it was much more risky for the guys who were sheltering the Brits than yes. it was for the Brits themselves. So they were looking for someone who had that confidence and who could... You know, everything's going to be fine. Don't you worry about it. I've got, I'm in control. They wanted that person to just be, yeah. oh, I, can, I believe in you. Yep. And to be fair, Cole was smart enough to surround himself with competent administrators and field agents, such as Marcel Rosu, a local brewer who transported fugitive Brits between safe houses in empty beer barrels Amazing. on the back of his truck. Oh my God, they don't look pissed. Well, empty beer barrels, but I'm sure one was like half empty. It's like, we have no time. Jump in. Yeah. Be like Sir Hiss in Robin Hood. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. By the end of the first year, over 200 servicemen had been successfully smuggled to safety. So it's going well. Yeah. You know, this is a high risk game that he's playing, but he appears to be playing it quite well. I was going to say, is it high risk, high reward though? We wait and see. During the same time, Cole had also acquired new suits and a car, which were necessary expenses, obviously. And oh, he, they were all his IOUs from British intelligence who he, oh, who he wow. works for. Okay. So don't worry about it, French people. It's not, getting, he's not even using his real name. Yeah, you'll be getting all of this money. No, he's he's using a, a fake name that was created for him by somebody who believes he is a different fake name. Yeah. Yeah. Wheels within wheels. In February 1941, Cole was invited to travel to Marseille himself to meet with Scotsman Ian Garrow. From British intelligence. Oh, wow. Garrow had set up a network smuggling British service spend from Marseille to Spain and realised that if Cole's network was joined to his, they would have a complete route mapped out. Yeah, except he didn't. Re- he wasn't really doing it, was he? No, he, he, Cole was transporting people down. Was. It, was, it was happening. He was just kept um, saying that he needed more money to keep setting the network ah, up. Ah, right, okay. And he, he just kept embezzling. But in order for you know, it to work, he did have to smuggle some people. Uh-huh. Cole introduced himself to Garrow as Paul Cole and explained that he was a simple sergeant left behind after the evacuation at Dunkirk. Oh, my heart bleeds. Who'd been selflessly working to establish the network out of a sense of patriotic duty. Oh. Long live the Queen! That'll be the blub, ki- blub. king weep. at this point. Weep, weep, blub, blub. Because mm. weirdly, this is a time before Elizabeth II. As if you could imagine. I know. Mm. On her platy jubes. On her platy jubes. Garrow was almost immediately convinced by the heartfelt story of this young, brave Tommy. Oh. And he asked Cole if he would like to continue in the role in an official capacity, complete with salary and the expenses being picked up by the British government. God, he's a proper jack the lad, isn't he? And amazed that he might actually be able to pay off the loans he had convinced a number of French patriots to provide, he jumped at the offer. Wow, I bet he did. He was given an initial cash boost of 10,000 francs in untraceable bills, naturally. Of course. Mm. 
In the spring and summer of 1941, it seemed that Cole may have actually turned over a new leaf. His network was sending a regular flow of servicemen south, and Cole even managed to enlist a priest called Pierre Carpentier. Pierre Carpentier. I love a rhyme. Pierre Carpentier to smooth the crossing of the so-called Forbidden Zone around Paris. yeah. Because, you know, Paris was the capital. Everything was so much more stringent about who could. Yes. You know, in the countryside, it's very hard to police the French in the countryside because you've seen what the villages are like. It's three houses and a dog. It is. And they're all separated by a couple of miles. (coughs) And then you get those signs that say you're in it. You don't even know exactly what you're in. And then before you... Before you blink, you're out of yeah, it. The again. sign with it across through it. You're now leaving. Leaving what? Leaving where? Where have I been? But if you if you wanted to set up checkpoints at every crossing yeah. in rural France, there would just be tens of thousands of German soldiers doing absolutely nothing because that road may not have been used in the past twenty years. I swear that has been my lived experience on some of the holidays I've been in rural France. That I've I've been down tracks that have not been used for the better part of fifty years, mm. apart from one man and a geriatric horse. But Pierre Carpentier was very useful because he could, um, he ha- would have the permissions to move people around Paris. Yeah, which was sort of the sticky part of the entire thing because you know how hard it is to get round Paris. Oh, you yeah. kind of go through it. Yeah, yeah. Cole also liked to be seen to take personal risks as oh. part of his image. Reveling in his reputation as a cunning spy, despite apparently insisting on wearing plus fours, a pork pie hat, and still speaking absolutely atrocious French because he hadn't learnt any more. And why would you need it, really? But that's classic Brits abroad, isn't it? The thing is, by drawing attention to himself, Cole was making people notice that he appeared to be spending much more money than he was being paid for his services. Okay. So because he wanted, he could have just sat in the background and played the part of, you know, like the uh, shadowy spy master. Oh, yeah. He's conducting it all from a back room in a hairdresser's, but you never actually see him do anything. Yeah. But no, he was out there, brand new clothes every day, driving this flash car. Uh Uh-huh. It was more than a government wage would be. Yeah. The amount that he was spending. Some of this could be explained by his developing of a side hustle, collecting intelligence for MI6. And this connection may have made Cole feel that his his position was untouchable. So he was drawing a bit more money because he was passing the information along. It was soon discovered, though, that he was also making money by sneaking Jewish people to safety by pretending they were Polish airmen. Okay. And all this cost the Jewish men was their entire life savings. In cash. So you made you made the reference to Schindler's List. Yeah, Schindler did. who did it in a selfless I don't care if I bankrupt myself. Yeah. I'm not being part of this. This Harold, really was Swindler's Harold List. Harold Cole was Swindler's List. He would wow. he would get you to safety, but once you got there, you would have the clothes on your back and a Polish passport. So yeah. there you go. Oh god. But even this was not enough for Cole. And by October 1941, it was really only Ian Garrow himself who didn't think that Cole was skimming money off the top of the network's funds on a regular basis. But because Garrow was the guy in charge, he was getting away with it. Everyone was going to Garrow and going, look, he spends weeks. We don't know where he is. He's somewhere in Lille. He's got a different woman on his arm every night. Yeah. 
And then he comes back and tells us that he's got no money and that he needs more money to help with the network. And we don't know what he's doing. And Gareth's going, trust trust him. He's British. How can you not trust him? Because he's British. Unfortunately for Cole, Ian Garrow was arrested by the Vichy French later in October 1941 and was replaced by Albert Gouris. Gouris? Gouris. A Belgian who disliked Cole from the very first time they met and could absolutely believe that this greasy little spiv from England was stealing to line his own pockets. Cole, believing he was still above suspicion, was getting a bit sloppy. And it took only a matter of days for Albert to gather irrefutable evidence of Cole's frauds. Yeah, it's a bit obvious though, isn't it? He invited Cole to a meeting on November 1st in Marseille, where Cole was confronted with mountains of damning evidence of his fraudulent dealings and was promptly arrested via a punch that fractured his jaw. Wow. Because that's how the Belgians arrest someone. Yeah. They never cover that in Poirot. No, they don't. But after he's done his pithy little speech, he cold clocks. Man or woman, whoever it is, he just cold clocks them right on the jaw. They locked him in a bathroom and debated what to do with him. Flush him down the toilet. Well, without access to a secure prison, many of the network leaders were in favour of simply executing Cole. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, he knows okay. too much. Yeah. And he is not someone you can rely on to keep his no, mouth shut. He's not trustworthy at mm. all, is he? While they were busy debating if, and if so, how to execute Cole, yeah. Cole jimmied open a window and escaped. <sighs> you know, my feelings on incompetence, Joe. Well, they didn't know that he was basically, you know, the Cockney Houdini. Yeah. <laughs> Cockney Houdini. Cole headed back to Lille. He sought help from his associates there, who at first refused to believe that he'd been stealing from them, even now, because when you've been conned, yes. and for some of these guys it was thousands of pounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, you big, know, big pennies. You don't want to admit that you've been a fool, so you sort of no. buy in even harder. Uh-huh. However, he was soon forced to fend for himself, and proved to not be very good at it. No. Cole was caught by the Abwehr agents on December 6th, 1941. Oh, dear. Harold Cole was a man who ultimately only cared about himself. Yes, he did. And he quickly realised that the best way to save his own skin was to give up all of his former allies, who he'd spent the last two years working with... For goodness sake. ...as a cover for defrauding them in order to fund his own lavish lifestyle. Oh, God. With very minimal prompting. And we're not talking torture here. We're talking they handed him a pen and gave him a sort of... Hmm? Yeah. Look. Yeah. He wrote a detailed 30-page report identifying anyone and everyone who had been tirelessly working to return what British servicemen to Britain. What a sleazy little bastard. Yeah. And when I say minimal prompting, the reports from the Abwehr agents say that they were genuinely supl- surprised and a little bit disgusted by how quickly he gave up the information. I just imagine he blurted it straight out. There wasn't even a question. If it's like... The people that you are, you know, you are helping by betraying your friends when even they are going, Jesus Christ, yeah. this guy is a slimy piece of shit. See, Knox is disgusted. Yeah, Knox is very disgusted, as well she might be. Dupre, the man he had defrauded the most, was quickly arrested and died in a German concentration camp, while the priest, Carpentier, was executed along with dozens of other brave agents who had made the mistake of trusting in the character of Cole. Overall, 
up to 150 men and women were given up by Cole, earning him the title of the worst traitor of World War Two. Oh, what? It was made all the worse by the fact that he actively took part in German operations to entrap his former comrades, oh, having to look them dead in the eyes and lie to them before the trap was sprung. So he'd arrange wow. me- he'd arrange meetups with people and go, I managed to escape. Yeah. We need to talk because, you know, they they've got bits of information and we need to shut down certain arms of the of the network. Yeah. And then when they turned up to the meetup, he'd sit and chat to them for a little while. And then the agents would come out. Oh, for God's sake. He was a proper sleaze back then. He knows what he cares about. And what he cares about is Harold Cole. God's sake. The fact that he'd been doing good work for two years in terms of returning people home was completely coincidental. It was just the best way for him to yeah. keep his lifestyle going as It's like, as long yeah, as I'll could. do this, but what, what's in it for me? Oh, yeah. He's not the kind of guy... If you were broken down on the side of the road and you needed help changing a tyre, yeah. he's not the kind of guy who's going to pull over. No. Not unless you you promised to give yeah. him your car. Well, if if he was driving past and you had a couple of bags of cash in the back of the car that he clocked, oh, then he'd pull over. He'd be your best yeah. friend. Yeah. He had bought his life at the cost of ruining the lives of hundreds, but he knew that it was likely only a reprieve. Therefore, he immediately began planning to escape his German handlers. Because he's like, as soon as they've shut down the network, they're going to be putting me in a camp as well. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got until I give up the last of my information and then I'm probably going to have exactly the same fate. Yeah. On December 14th, only eight days after his capture, he managed to escape with the help of a 19-year-old woman called Suzanne Warringham. Okay. She believed his patter, that he was a secret agent being hunted by the Gestapo and was so caught up in the romance of it all that she agreed to help on the spot. Wow. She was so caught up in it, actually, that she married Henry Cole in April 1942. How many times has this bloke married? No, he's never been married. He's he's had girlfriends. Oh, And right. he's been with married women. Oh, right. Okay. But he's never actually been married to this point. Yeah, they, they got married in April 1942 while he was on the run from practically everyone in Northern Europe because now he's on the run from the Allied powers yeah. and from the Axis powers. Yeah. So... Hmm. Cole was busy trying to raise funds to escape. She picked well. Yeah. Well, no, as far as she, he was, you know, as far as she was concerned, he was a dashing secret agent on the run from the Gestapo. Yeah. And she was going to help him. Of course she was. Yeah. And then they, they retired to some tropical island with all the money that a grateful, you know, Her Majesty's government will bestow upon Cole. Yeah. Not a match with a platy yeah. jubes. Very, very James Bond. Think very James Bond. Yeah, Only with less Sean Connery striking women. Yeah, Cole was busy trying to raise funds to escape from Europe altogether. He even robbed all three of his new wife's aunts before taking his new wife, complete with unborn child, south from their hiding place in Paris to Lyon. Oh, I've been to Lyon. <laughs> yeah, so she had three aunties. He robbed each of the three aunties blind. All the silver, all the jewels, all the money that he could get. That is really, really loud. And then before they reported it to his new wife, he's like, no, we need to go to Leon. You can tell no one. Especially I, not your I aunties. I swear down, this bloke has no redeeming feature whatsoever. He'd fit real, in really, really well with Ronnie and Reggie. Mm. I, don't, I don't know, because he wasn't good at violence. That's the one thing. He personally 
never really committed a violent act. Yeah. It was just he... He, it depends what you class violence as, and that's a very big topic, well, isn't he, it? Really? He engineered situations where he knew other people would die, definitely. Yeah. He saw he saw people as expendable. Yeah. Entirely, but he never really seemed to be aggressive towards people. You know, when, whenever he got captured, he didn't do a... F- yeah, but if you knowingly put people in harm's way, then that is a violent act. Mm. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a more cowardly violence. It's, he's not... He's not just going to walk up and punch someone or I have suppose, a brawl with someone. I suppose so, but it's still violence in my book. Fair enough. Okay. Colin managed to raise a few thousand francs by this point in Lyon, and he was almost ready to leave for good when he was caught again by the Vichy police. Ooh, the Vichy Soirs. For Cole, actually, this was the best case scenario as far as capture went. If any Allied forces found him... They were now well prepared to shoot him on sight for his betrayal, <laughs> while the Germans were. would likely have executed him as a spy. The Vichy authorities, however, they were trying to run the gauntlet between the two. Right. Okay. Um, and well, surely, did... surely if running the gauntlet between the two is, oh, one of them wants to shoot him and the other one wants to shoot him, well, fucking shoot him then. Yeah, but they don't want to give him to either side because it would show favouritism, so they just themselves. put him in prison. I mean, they did sentence him to death. Right. Uh, but there was an appeals process available, and his sentence was eventually commuted to a lifetime of hard labour. So, it, it, you know, it was the best of a real bad bunch of scenarios for him in terms yeah. of capture. Suzanne Warringham was also arrested and tried. This is his new wife. Yeah. But during the trial, it became painfully clear to her and everyone else that she'd been duped. Yeah. Knew nothing about any of this. No. And was just an innocent girl who was caught up in the romance of it all. Oh, God. So she was released. Oh. Penniless and pregnant onto the streets of Lyon. She never saw her husband again and eventually made it to Plymouth in 1944 and changed her last name to Warren. The baby she had with Cole died before she made it to the safety of Britain. Oh, God. I know. She had tried to um, remain in France before she went to Britain. Yeah. But unfortunately, even though, you know, in court it had been very clear. Yeah. None of the people in the network believed her. No. And they all sort of shunned her. So her entire friendship, you know, all of her life, livelihood, her family, her friends, everything was gone. Because don't forget, she brought a bloke in who robbed all three of her aunties blind. Yes. So she wasn't welcome back in Paris. Yeah. Cole, he remained in prison until late 1943. Oh, right. When the Abwehr offered him the opportunity to begin working for them in the field, disrupting the operations of the reconstructed escape lines. Right. Seeing an opportunity for a further escape, Cole agreed and began working for the Germans again. Oh, for God's sake. Albeit this time under much tighter supervision. He betrayed more former colleagues until the summer of 1944 and the Normandy landings. As the Allies advanced on Paris, Cole took advantage of the confusion in August to take on the guise of a Gestapo agent and retreat along with thousands of German soldiers towards Berlin. So The, the, the bloke has no redeeming feature. No, so he could see that, you know, the Germans, the tide was turning, the Germans yeah. were starting to retreat, yeah. and in the confusion he was like, right, well, I may as well jump up a rank and call myself a Gestapo agent and take on that guise because wow. maybe I can weasel 
my way out yeah, of this Yeah, weasel is the right word, isn't it? Weasel all the way. Unfortunately, he was being, you know, shuffled towards Berlin and yeah. the Russians were coming from the other side, so he, he was being squeezed a little. Oh, and by April God. 1945, coal was running out of options. He had left the wreck shell of the German capital, complete with dead dictator, and was heading towards the Austro-Swiss border. Good right. old neutral Switzerland. Yeah. And as a bonus, they have lots of money that can be swindled. Yes, they do. It's amazing he's never been to Switzerland before. It's I perfect know, right? for him. I was just going to say, I mean, if you want to disappear some money, Switzerland's the place, isn't it? Unfortunately, the group of soldiers he was um, travelling with, the German soldiers, they got attacked and Cole was hit by some shrapnel. And him and just a few other soldiers... Yeah broke off from the main convoy and were left stranded. Right. He had a chat with his new German friends uh-huh. and decided on a scheme. Okay. They would approach a US encampment and claim to be British agents acting as German Gestapo agents in need of assistance. Well, this is, this is going wheels within wheels yeah. again. Cole introduced himself to the Americans as Captain Robert Mason and was able to play the role convincingly enough that he was actually given a US Army uniform and ID card. God's sake. Probably by ratting out the other German soldiers. Yeah, I was just going to say, by, by being a right scumbag. Mm. He was then asked to begin working with the Allies, arresting and interrogating high-level Nazis. God's sake. And you know when I was saying that Cole, to this point, hadn't done a violent act? Turns yeah. out that was just because the opportunity hadn't arisen. Oh, right, so because he was a proper scumbag then. Now that he was being told, we want you to be a Nazi hunter, he was finally able to let out some of the frustration and he committed at least one murder of a German prisoner. Or war crime, if you prefer. To the point where it was you know, described as he walked over to a handcuffed prisoner and shot him in the head from point-blank range. Finally feeling like he's in a position of power, having been running for a couple of years now. Uh-huh. Uh, he committed at least one murder, but it's likely to have been a lot more. Sake. If the enthusiasm in his new job was to try and avoid suspicion, yeah, it didn't work for long. On June eleventh, nineteen forty-five, yeah, British intelligence agent Peter Hope finally caught up with Cole. It's about time, and very wisely shot him in the leg to ensure that he wouldn't escape. Okay, that is yeah. You know, just as a matter of course. It's yep. Just, pff, right. Not going anywhere now, are you bastard face? Cole was taken to a prison in Paris to await trial. However, as this was Harold Cole, he escaped just before his trial on November 18th, 1945, stole an American officer's uniform and disappeared into the streets of the city. However, this time, there was no fog of war to disappear into. No. And a massive manhunt ensued. God's sake. Unable to gain forged papers, Cole was trapped in the city, trying to avoid detection. Uh-huh. He eventually found his way to a room above a disreputable bar called Billy's Bar, where one of the patrons recognised him and quietly informed the authorities. At 10am on January 8th, 1946, uh-huh. two French policemen made their way up to the fourth floor to arrest Harold Cole. Cole, hearing the footsteps, was prepared and opened fire immediately. Wow. But for all of his talk of exploits in the army, he was not really any good at actually firing a gun. Right. 
if it wasn't point blank with a handcuffed prisoner, obviously. Yeah. One of the policemen, called Raymond Cotty, was a very good shot, however, and managed to hit Cole directly in his heart. Wow, that is a good shot. The silver tongue cockney fell backwards without uttering another word. Harold Cole was described kindly as... Kindly. ...among the most selfish and callous traitors who ever served the enemy in a time of war. Yep. And unkindly as a con man, thief, and utter shit who betrayed his country to the highest bidder for money. Yep. I leave it up to you to decide which description is most fitting. Both. <laughs> Both. All of it. And more, <coughs> probably. Mm. And that is the story of Harold Cole. Wow. The anti-British secret agent. Yeah. The antithesis of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Affairs. Yeah. No honour. No honour. No honour at all. At all. And the source that we used for this one. Turncoat. The strange case of British Sergeant Harold Cole, the worst traitor of the war, by Brendan M. Murphy. And the the book itself actually gives a lot more detail about um, the character's that were around Harold. Right. It gives you the backstories of like Dupuy and um, of the priest and all of these people who he betrayed. And yeah. it's really, really heartbreaking to hear Aww. how these... Genuine, generally, I mean, Dupuy was quite old, but genuinely, most of them were quite young oh, and God. idealistic. And yeah. they just wanted to do something to help the resistance and to help liberate France. And he just sucked it all in. All yeah. of their affection, all of their praise, all of their money. Yeah. And then just betrayed the shit out of them. So quickly. Wow. So quickly that it made German secret agents sick. Oh, that's saying something. Isn't it? I mean, so there you go. Yes. A happy story for over the platy jubes. Platy jubes? Platy jubes. I don't think we can say any more, can no. we? No. Platy Jubes. Platy Jubes. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.